Good morning again, everybody at Henson Baptist. It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, Michael, uh, uh, thank you for that kind introduction a little bit earlier on in the service. Uh, my name is Greg Gilbert. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm the pastor of uh, one of your sister churches, actually. I don't know how many of you have ever had the opportunity to be in Louisville, but uh, I hope you know that Third uh, Avenue in Louisville prays for you often. We pray for your pastor, Michael. Uh, and uh, even though... I doubt a whole lot of members of Third Avenue and Henson have ever met one another. You know, the majority of us probably haven't met each other. Uh, we are uh, sisters and brothers in the faith of Christ. And so uh, I, it's my pleasure to be able to bring you greetings from Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville this morning. We are uh, actually having your pastor, Michael, to preach to us in February. We're going to be uh, hosting our very first Charles Simeon Trust Workshop at Third Avenue, learning how to... Uh, exegete the scriptures of the Lord and then present those to a congregation in a sermon. Michael's going to come and uh, instruct in that and uh, we're going to look forward to hearing from God's word from him uh, a little bit, well, early on in 2022. Uh, let me invite you, if you've got a Bible, to turn over to the book of Proverbs. That's where we're going to be. Uh, it's a little bit of a strange sermon this morning because we're not going to be looking at just one particular place in a particular book of the Bible. That's just kind of not how most of the book of Proverbs Works And so we're going to be jumping around throughout the book of Proverbs this morning. So you're going to be super helped by having a Bible in front of you and then just, uh, you know, as much as you can flip to the various places that I'm talking about at any given time. There are going to be times when I just give it to you sort of rapid fire. And the best thing to do in those moments might just be to listen to the words that I read uh, off off these pieces of paper. I'm not even going to be turning to all of them. I've written them down on on these papers and I'm going to be giving them to you fast sometimes. But occasionally I'll say, hey, why don't you take the Bible, turn over to a particular place in Proverbs. We want to look at it carefully and you'll be super helped if you've got a Bible and can do that. We're going to be talking this morning, as, as you've probably noticed, has been the theme of the whole service today, about the power of words. Uh, we're going to spend a whole lot of time, because that's what Proverbs does, talking about the power of our words to do good or to do harm to each other. We're also going to be talking about how the power of our words pales in comparison to the power of God's word. So that's where we're going to be headed this morning. Let me give you a couple of things up front about the book of Proverbs. First of all, most of this book, if you kind of flip through it, you can see it's 31 chapters long. Uh, it's situated kind of near the middle of the Old Testament. It was either written or spoken some 3,000 years ago by King Solomon of Israel, who was the son of the great King David. You all know him if you know the story of the Bible much. You know the, the golden age of King David. Well, Solomon was David's son. And uh, he was the man who reigned over an even greater golden age than even David did. Solomon was a man who was throughout the world renowned for his wisdom. You may remember the story in the Old Testament about how God came to him and said, Solomon, ask of me anything that you want and I'll give you anything in the world that you want. If you want riches, I'll give you riches. If you want power, I'll give you power. Tell me what you want and it is yours. And Solomon, quite wisely, it turns out, asked for wisdom. And so God gave it to him and he became renowned for his wisdom. So it's not really surprising that this great book of wisdom, Proverbs, that we've got here would have been largely written by him. It wasn't exclusively written by Solomon, though. There are other pieces of the book that are written by other people. You might even think of the book of Proverbs as actually not even really one book, but it's kind of an anthology of wisdom. 
It contains several collections of wisdom sayings that have been brought together in this one book. So, for example, chapter 1 through about the middle of chapter 22 are the sayings of Solomon. That's the, the sort of main bulk of the book. This is what Solomon said about wisdom. Then from the middle of 22 to the middle of 24, you've got a new book that's identified as the 30 sayings. Those might be by Solomon. They might not. We're not exactly sure about that. And there's a kind of appendix to that little 30 sayings book. Then from 25 to 29, you've got more sayings of Solomon that were written down not during the time of Solomon, but centuries later during the time of a different king of Israel, Hezekiah. Chapter 30 is a really just wonderful collection of extremely witty and sometimes even funny poems by a man named Agur, who was the son of Jake, about whom we know absolutely nothing. Uh, That's all we've got of him is just these proverbs that he put down, these witty little poems. His name is Agur. He's the son of Jake. That's all we know. And then 31 is another wonderful poem by a man named King Lemuel, Another guy we know nothing about, except that we are quite certain he was never a king of either Israel or Judah. So we don't know what he was the king of. We don't know when he was writing. But he shows up here at the end of the book of Proverbs. So, again, what you've got to think of Proverbs as is, is, is less one book about wisdom than an anthology of books that were collected over some time that contain wisdom. And what's the point of a book of wisdom? Well... Along with Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, the book of Proverbs makes up a collection of books in the middle of the Old Testament that have come to be known as wisdom literature. Now, the problem is it's always a little bit hard to define what wisdom literature is because it's not as if the wisdom books, these five books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, uh, those, those books there, it's not as if that's the only place in the Bible where you find wisdom. Right. And each one of those books has a slightly different character to it. So, you know, there's more prose, for example, in some of the books than there is in others. Others are more poetic. Proverbs itself has this uh, 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 style to it of just being these little aphoristic statements that, you know, you would be most comfortable finding on a coffee mug or in a fortune cookie. Uh, there's sometimes witty. There's sometimes funny. There's sometimes ironic. That's the pro- that's the character of the book of Proverbs. So it's a little bit hard to define what exactly wisdom is and why we call these five books wisdom literature as opposed to the whole rest of the scriptures. But the general idea of the book of Proverbs, really the general idea of the whole of the the five books of wisdom, seems to be to reflect on the world that God has made, to reflect on its normal rhythms and patterns, and to reflect on humanity's place in that world. So I think the best way probably to kind of summarize what books of wisdom are about is that they are meant to teach us the art of living well in God's world. That's what they're here for. They're here to teach us the art of living well in God's world. And as we're going to see today, that's exactly what Proverbs is trying to do. It's trying to teach you how to live well in the world that God has made. Now, usually we think of Proverbs as these little aphoristic statements that that, that they're, they're very short, they're very witty, sometimes they're ironic. That's the kind of thing we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at a whole bunch of those little aphorisms. But the whole of the book of Proverbs is actually not like that. That's not how the book starts. For the first nine chapters, Solomon is actually making a sustained, organized argument. And that argument is a plea to his son to choose the way of wisdom and not of foolishness. And that plea by Solomon to his son 
O son, please choose the way of wisdom. Do not choose the way of foolishness. Be a wise person, not a fool. Sets up the main contrast that exists throughout the entire book of Proverbs. So as we're going to look, as we're going to see, as we look through the book, you're going to see Proverbs again and again that set a contrast between the wise man and the fool. And today, because we're talking about words, it's going to be how wise people use, use words and how foolish people use words. Well, the thing that's interesting about the first nine chapters, though, I mean, beyond just it's, it's interesting that a father is writing these poems and writing these proverbs to say, oh, son, choose wisdom. Don't do, don't choose foolishness. Right. There's good lessons in parenting there. But what's really surprising and, and just fascinating about those first nine chapters, though, is that when Solomon tells his son to choose wisdom over foolishness, it becomes clear in those first nine chapters that he's telling his son not just to choose a thing, wisdom, but rather to choose a person over foolishness. He's telling him to choose God over foolishness. God, Yahweh, the the, the one God of Israel over any other false God, which he defines as foolishness. So you read the first nine chapters, that becomes really clear. Wisdom is not a thing. Wisdom is a person. It's God. It's, it's, it's Yahweh. It's the Lord of Israel. And as the New Testament finally shows us as the story moves on, it's ultimately the eternal son of God, Jesus. So that's the argument Solomon makes in, in 1 through 9. He pleads with his son to choose Yahweh over any other false god, to put God himself at the center of his life and not anything else. Things change, though, starting in chapter 10. So if one to nine or this extended argument starting in chapter 10 and running all the way through chapter 30, there's no real argument being made at all. I mean, other than maybe the character of the difference between a wise person and a foolish person. But there's certainly no sustained argument. It's just hundreds and hundreds of these little couplets we mostly think of as Proverbs. And they are about everything under the sun. I mean, you drop into any particular place between chapter 10 and chapter 30 of Proverbs, and there's no telling what you're going to hit. You're going to hit Proverbs about pride and about work and about money and about having good manners at a social setting. You're going to find Proverbs about friendships and marriage and parenting, politics, economics, justice, anger, fighting, how to have dinner with a king and not make a fool of yourself. Super useful for most of us. The list just goes on and on and on. And the thing is, and the problem for any preacher who approaches Proverbs is that there's no structure or organization to them at all, at least that we've been able to find yet. So some of you may have been involved in the Simeon Trust Workshop this this week where we're using tools like structure and context and, you know, the melodic line and all these trying to to discern a structure and an argument in, in Proverbs. You might as well just leave those tools on the table. When you come to Proverbs, because they don't work. There's just no structure to it, at least that we've been able to find yet. And you got little clusters of Proverbs here and there that have the same theme. So you might have, you know, six that talk about words and six that talk about money. But there's nothing in it that gives it a kind of overarching, even underlying organization. And people have tried through the centuries to give it a lot of different, different structures. People have tried to break it into sections. That doesn't work. People have tried to identify key words. That doesn't work. There was even one scholar who wrote a book recently who who said that maybe the literal sounds of the of the consonants and the letters in the book in the original Hebrew create some kind of structure to it. And he said he said so there are certain places of it where there are just a whole lot of B's like and others where there's a lot of whatever that's called in the back of your throat when you go. And he said that maybe just maybe those little sounds come together to create what he called twiglets 
running throughout the book like the twisted branches of a bramble bush. And you can follow them through the whole book, which sounds mostly to me like there's no organization to this. So I'm going to make something up. Bottom line, most scholars don't see any structure or organization to it. So, so reading through Proverbs really becomes an exercise of, of kind of like looking out over a, a rocky beach, just strewn with all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors of rocks and shells and all kinds of things. And it's, it just seems utterly random. Now, in one sense, I mean, if you tried to walk out on a beach and organize all that and see a pattern in the rocks and the shells and all the rest of it, it would be bewildering. But in another sense, it's beautiful in its own way, isn't it? You've walked out on a beach. You've seen beaches that are strewn with rocks, strewn with shells, strewn with sand. And the sheer randomness of the whole thing is is beautiful in its own way. In fact, some people have guessed, and I think this is probably as close as we're going to get to an explanation of it. Some people have guessed that the randomness of Proverbs is in fact deliberate because it's a reflection of the randomness of life itself. I mean, after all, when we're living life, the problems and challenges and joys of each day and each week and month and year tend to come to us in much the same way the Proverbs do, right? It's first one thing and then another and then another and then another. So maybe part of the very nature of wisdom and learning wisdom is to learn that wisdom isn't finally about getting everything into neat little categories, but about dealing well with the randomness of life as it comes. I wonder if that might be the overarching structure of Proverbs. Anyway, what we're going to be doing today is, is, again, not going to one particular place, not stepping verse by verse through the book of Proverbs. What we're going to be doing today is just skipping all over the book of Proverbs and gathering up those that talk about our words. It turns out Proverbs has a lot to say about what we say. In fact, of the 915 verses in the book, Proverbs talks about our words in about 150 of them. So about 16% of the book is given over to the words that we say to one another. So clearly what we say and to whom we say it and how we say it is something Proverbs and therefore God is acutely interested in. Like other topics, what it says about our words is scattered around in these little little couplets. But there are a few places where a number of Proverbs about words are clustered together. So what I want to do first is just read a few of those in order to get a feel for how Proverbs talks about our words. So take a Bible, if you have one, and turn over to Proverbs chapter 10. And I'm just going to read a few of these. Let's, let's just go to chapter 10, verse 18. I'm not going to talk about them yet. Just sort of let them wash over you and get a feel for how Proverbs operates. Chapter 10, verse 18. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Turn over to Proverbs 25. We'll read read a couple more of these. Chapter 25, verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. 
like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Now, now there's a lot that we could talk about here. We are, in fact, going to talk about some of those verses. But uh, as many of you know who have heard me preach before at my own church in Third Avenue uh, in Louisville, I like to give a kind of main idea of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, and, and if I'm doing this expositional preaching thing correctly, it'll be sort of the main idea of the texts that we're looking at in this case. So I think the main idea of what Proverbs has to say about words is really what we just read in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Now that's metaphorical, but you can get the point. A word that's fitly spoken is a beautiful thing. That's what Proverbs 25 is 11, 25, 11 is about. And it's what all of these Proverbs that we're going to be looking at with regard to our words are saying. So, so the question for today, I think, is, okay, that's great, but what is a word fitly spoken? If that's a beautiful thing, and if it's something that gives health and goodness, then what is it and how do you do it? Well, we're going to explore what Hebrews has to say about that in three points. Here they are. Number one, the nature and importance of words. The nature and importance of words. Number two, how to be a fool with your words. I'm literally going to tell you today, and Proverbs is going to tell you, how to be a fool with your words. That's point number two. Point number three, then, how to be wise with your words. How to be wise with your words. All right. Point number one, then the nature and importance of words. Let's see what Proverbs has to say about it. Here's my here's my question. Why would Solomon have spent so much time, fully one sixth of the entire book of Proverbs, talking about words and the way that we use them? Well, the answer, I think, is that in an almost unique way about among everything human beings do to and for each other words, it turns out are powerful and they are revealing. I mean, there's something fitting in that, isn't there? I mean, if the Bible makes anything clear, it is that the word of God is uniquely and unstoppably powerful. I mean, think about how many times in the Bible God uses his word to make things happen. It's the word of God that created the universe, right? God didn't take his hands and grab some material and put the universe together. He just spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be land, and there was land, water, and there was water, the sun, and the moon, and the stars. And there were the sun, the moon, and the stars. God's word is powerful. It was by his word that God gave Adam life. It was by his word that he called Israel to be his people. It was by his word that he brings you and me as Christians from spiritual life to spiritual death. So I think it stands to reason insofar as you and I as human beings are created in the image of God. It stands to reason that our words would bear some reflection of that power. Now, obviously, it's not the same thing, right? You and I don't have... You know, I don't have the power to create ex nihilo, nothing, nothing like that. I mean, you know, I can't stand here and say, let there be a rabbit and, the, and a rabbit appears on, on the stage. I can't do that. My words don't have that kind of power. But in a lot of ways, our words as human beings do, in fact, have the power to shape and change what is to create and to destroy, to build up and tear down. Solomon recognizes this in Proverbs, this power that's inherent to our words So chapter 11, verse 11, for example, talks about this. Solomon writes there, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. I mean, you see the power that Solomon is talking about there? By by the words of blessing of the righteous one, a city can be exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, 
a city can be overthrown. 1821 gets even more to the point. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The tongue is powerful. That's not a unique thought, is it? It's not even unique to Christianity. We read about it earlier in the service in, in the book of James. James is a Christian. But all you got to do is go to Google and like type in, you know, aphorisms about words. And you'll literally find hundreds of quotes from people recognizing this reality. The power of words is nothing new. I mean, think about it. Our words can't create a world out of nothing like God's can. But our words do sometimes create and change reality. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor, it turns out, I was, I'm surprised by this as a pastor. Actually, I did not expect this to be the case. But one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is weddings. I love them. They're so much fun because, you know, you, me, uh, me and the groom, the groom and I get to walk in first and stand at the, uh, at the platform, right? He's usually standing right here. We're a little closer to the center, but I can't get there right now. And we get to watch, me and the groom, the bride walk down the aisle. Right. And usually his eyes are very much on the bride. My eyes are sort of cutting back and forth between the bride and the groom, because what will happen is that when the bride goes in, you'll often see the groom kind of drop back like this a little bit. And it's my job as the pastor standing next to him. If he goes down to catch him. And so I need to be watching to make sure that the the little dude is not going to fall out as he watches his almost wife come into the room. So she walks down, he goes down and meets her, they turn around, right, and we do all the things, we sing and we pray and we do all the stuff, and then they, they walk up onto the platform with me, and we're standing here together, like this, they're standing in front of me, right, and then we do the vows. He makes promises, she makes promises, and then, and then what happens at the, at the end of that whole thing? Well, I get to stand there in front of the, the congregation and these two people, and I get to say, in sight of God and in the company of these witnesses, I declare that you are man and wife that changes reality for those two people I mean, before i say those words they're not man and wife they're not married but as soon as that word wife comes out of my mouth bam reality is different they're married and all kinds of things change for them i mean my words Create the reality of a new covenant of marriage. And I don't know if you've ever done a wedding before, but your words do the same thing. Your words create and shape and form reality. Your words from day to day, hour to hour, can create an atmosphere of either encouragement or of hurt, anxiousness or ease. You can absolutely make somebody's day. You can put a smile on their face or you can absolutely destroy the confidence of somebody as you tear them down. Words are powerful. And we try to convince ourselves sometimes that words aren't all that powerful after all. I mean, you remember the the little playground taunt, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But you don't have to get much past second grade to realize that, that that's just playground dribble. Sticks and stones do break your bones, but words break your heart. Your words can destroy just as effectively, often more effectively than a brick thrown in somebody's face. They're powerful. But it's not just that they're powerful. Words, it turns out, partly because they are powerful, are also liable to judgment. They carry moral weight, and God will judge us for how we use their power. Let me just read through a few Proverbs where this is the case. You can jot them down, maybe, just the addresses, and, list, and, and uh, go look at them later. 15.5. A false witness will not go unpunished. 
And he who breathes out lies will not escape. 15.9 says the same thing, except it clarifies that when it says will not escape, it actually means that person will perish. If you breathe out lies, you will perish. 14.3, by the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back. 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. You see the, you see the point in all of those Proverbs? The point is you're liable for what you say. And either blessing or cursing, either good or evil, will come to you eventually because of what you say. And why is that? Well, 22.12, it is because... The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of a traitor. You see the point? Our words are not just idle, morally insignificant little wisps of air that are shaped by our vocal cords. They carry moral weight and the Lord watches over them. He treasures words of wisdom, but he's determined to overthrow the words of a fool. Now, we'll talk more about what foolish words look and sound like in a few minutes. I'm literally going to give you a user's guide to how to use your words foolishly. But first, we want to ask the question, why? Why are words so important to God? Well, the answer is because our words reveal what is in our hearts. I want you to listen to what Solomon says in two different places, 15.2 and then 10.31. In 15.2, in the second part of it, he says, the mouths of fools pour out folly. The mouths of fools pour out pour out folly. But then in 1031, he says, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Do do you see the point of that? The mouth of the fool brings forth folly precisely because the man is a fool. And the mouth of of, of the wise brings forth wisdom precisely because he is a man of wisdom. Now think about that. Why, why Why does a fool's mouth pour forth folly? It's because that mouth is attached to a fool. Why does the mouth of the righteous pour forth wisdom? It's because that mouth pouring forth wisdom is attached to a righteous, wise person. This is exactly the point that Jesus was making when he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now, friends, that's a simple enough lesson, like, you know, intellectually and academically, it makes sense. What comes out of your mouth, the words you speak, how you use them are a reflection of who you are right down into the depths of your heart. Easy lesson to hear, extremely hard lesson to learn. So let me ask you, what what do your words say about you? What do they reflect about you? Do they reflect a bitter heart, an angry heart, a sarcastic heart, a cynic's heart, an encouraging heart, a loving heart, a righteous heart, a heart that wants to build up and not tear down? Friends, don't let that lesson be lost on you. Proverbs tells us that our words are not idle. They matter. They're powerful. God cares about them and they're liable to his judgment precisely because they reflect what's in our heart. But that brings up a problem, doesn't it? I mean, what if, what if you do a little, you know, self, self-categorizing, you know, self, self-diagnosis of your words, and you say, wow, I don't, I don't like what my words say about me. Most of my words are, are full of cynicism, they're full of sarcasm, they're full of tearing down, they're full of negative, dark, bad things, and, and, and what I'm learning here is maybe that all those words are not just idle and, and, and insignificant, but they're reflecting something that's down in here. 
And my heart is full of cynicism and sarcasm and tearing down instead of building up and darkness and negativity. And I don't like that. What if, what if that's the case? What's, what's the answer? I mean, is the answer to that to just start changing your words? Like trying really hard to say nice things, trying really hard to not be so cynical and sarcastic? Is that, is that what it is? No, 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 no. No, you might as well be, see a dead apple tree out, out on the street and go start duct taping apples to the tree to try to make the thing healthy again. You can't take a negative, dark, sarcastic, cynical, sinful heart that's spewing forth poison in your words and just, you know, change the words and think that that's going to change the root. It doesn't work like that. What you need is a new heart. What you need is for the Lord to use his powerful word to change your heart, to give it new life. So that what begins to happen is not that you're just duct taping new words onto the tree, so to speak, but that that heart begins to pump forth good stuff instead of bad, wise stuff instead of foolish stuff, righteous instead of unrighteous stuff. You need a new heart. And the glory of, of, of what we gather here to talk about as Christians is that it's the Christian gospel that tells you how that can happen. That God is in the business. The God of Jesus Christ is in the business of giving people new hearts. In the book of Ezekiel, he says, look, if you'll come to me in trust, if you'll believe in me, then what I'll do is take out your stony, dead heart and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll take your dead spirit and I'll make it alive so that your entire life in the course of it begins to change friends some of you some of you need to do that today some of you need to come to jesus christ who is himself the great word of god spoken to us this is god said what i am about this is who i am it's jesus some of you need to come to him and say jesus i need a new heart my heart is spewing forth poison every single day and i want you to change that I want a new heart, Jesus, and I can't do that. You need to say, Jesus, I know know too that I'm liable to judgment for the words that I've spoken. I deserve to, to die because of my sin, even in my words, much less my actions. I realize that now. But then you say, Jesus, I also know, I also know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you lived and died and rose again to stand in the place of people just like me so that that liability to punishment, that punishment of death, For my words and my actions doesn't have to fall on me, but it can fall on you instead so that I can so that I can live. So, Jesus, I'm embracing you in faith with everything I've got. You save me or I'm a goner. Maybe you need to do that this morning. If you do, just grab any member of this church and say, hey, I need to know more about Jesus. I need to know more about this new heart that Greg was talking about because I need that. And they'll talk it through with you. They'll tell you how Jesus can give you a new heart heart but of course even after you're a christian there are just lots and lots of ways to grow in the way we use our words so point number two point number two how to be a fool with your words so this is your user's guide if you're just really determined to be a fool with your words i'm about to tell you how we already know that proverbs divides human beings into two major categories there are wise people and there are fools and not surprisingly the book has a whole lot to say about Excuse me, how fools use their words. So here we go, a how-to guide for, you might say, foolproof tips for how to be a fool with your words. Number one, talk a lot. Talk a lot. What you have to say is, of course, of utmost importance to you, 
So you can safely assume that it will be of the utmost importance to everyone around you as well. Proverbs talks a lot about this. 1019, for for, for example, goes right at it. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. In other words, the more words you pile up, the more opportunities you're creating for some of those words to be sinful. 1728 puts it kind of humorously. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's thought intelligent. And it's sort of the same idea, right? Is that old saying, better to be silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Right? I mean, it's, it's a funny saying. If, if you're quiet, people may think you're a fool, but if you open your mouth, everybody's going to know for sure that you are. That's what Proverbs 17:28 seems to be saying. Bottom line, 13:3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So it's the number of words you speak, but it's not just the number. It's also not, it's not just that that gets you in trouble. It's also the speed with which we spit those words out. Listen to 2920. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Or 2911. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Because there are so many lessons to be learned from just these few Proverbs that I've, I've given you right here about the number of words that we use and how much we speak and how quickly we speak. There are so many lessons. I mean, one of the marks of wisdom, according to Proverbs here, is simply not to say everything that might come into your mind. Not to take it as the life motto. I've seen so many people sort of take this life motto as if it's a good thing. But don't take it as a life motto that, well, I'm just saying what I think. I mean, sometimes saying what you think doesn't make you honest. It doesn't make you a straight shooter. It just makes you a fool. That is a hugely important thing to keep in mind, especially in a world of social media. When you can grab your phone or you can grab your computer and you can speak basically to the whole world, anybody who's listening, anything that pops into your little mind. You ever think about social media? The whole thing, it doesn't matter which one, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever the new one is these days, the whole thing is literally designed to get you to violate every one of these proverbs as often as possible. That's why it exists. It wants you to say too much. It wants you to give full vent to your spirit and to do it as fast and as often as possible. Friends, how would your social media habits change if you took the wisdom of Proverbs to heart? It's an incredibly important thing, and it is worth thinking about. So talk a lot and talk really quickly about things. That's one way to be a fool. Here's the second point, how to be a fool. Tell lies. A lot of them. I mean, sometimes it's just necessary, right, to get the best outcome on something. And besides, a little white lie here and there doesn't really hurt anybody. Well, here's what Proverbs says about that. 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. It's not a huge surprise. One of the Ten Commandments is literally, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But Proverbs doesn't just give it as a command. It actually goes a step further and considers why lying is so evil. Like, why does lying get to be one of the great Ten Commandments? Well, Proverbs kind of works that out. So here's what it says in 25.18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor... Is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. I mean, you see the point, right? Saying false things about another person harms them. It harms their reputation. 
or take something from them that should not be taken. But, but it's not even just that. So it harms. That's, that's true. But even more, Proverbs says, lying about someone rises out of a heart that is marked by hatred. 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims. And even more in 26, 27. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he says anything gracious, don't believe it. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred may be covered over with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the end. You see what that's saying? A heart that's full of hatred is covered over with deception. To lie about someone is just a cover for hating them. For wanting evil to happen to them. Friends, when was the last time you lied about someone? You said something that was false or maybe, maybe a little exaggerated even to make that person look bad. Maybe just take them down a notch or two compared to you. Well, the Bible says that that's not just a little white lie. It's hatred working itself out in your words. Here's the surprising thing, though, in all of this. The surprising thing is that this hate-born lying can happen in a totally unexpected way as well. Not just in an effort to tear somebody down, but in an effort to falsely puff them up. You ever think about that? Flattery, Proverbs says, is actually a form of hatred for the other person. Turn with me in your Bible. I want you to, to go to this one. Turn with me to 2628. I read, read it to you. At least half of it a second ago. 26, 28. First part of that verse says, A lying tongue hates its victims, which I think is pretty easy to understand. If you lie about somebody, you're trying to tear them down, you're, you're hurting the victim of that lie. But look at how it ends. Look at the second part of it. This is the surprising thing. A flattering mouth works ruin. Now, that's surprising because we generally think of flattery as saying good things about somebody. But Proverbs is saying here that a flattering mouth works ruin. Is that surprising to you? Well, well, I mean, think about what flattery is. I mean, flattery is a lie as much as any other. It's to say things to another person that you don't really believe. Why? In order probably to get in that person's good graces. Now, you might think that flattering words are a form of love. But the Bible says that it's a form of hatred for that person because you're using your words to tell lies to them so that you can use them for your own good. That's what Proverbs says. You're using them. You're telling them false things because you want something from them for your own ends. Look, I tell my church all the time, I, I want Third Avenue Baptist Church, and I'm sure you guys want Henson Baptist Church to be a place of just effusive encouragement. Right? Words that are just going all over the place, that are encouraging people in the faith, telling them where you see evidence of, evidences of grace in their life, telling them how to grow in Christ, telling them how you've seen them grow in Christ. I want that kind of thing to be happening all over my church and your church too. But when you let those words fly toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, let them be true and not flattering. Even when you encourage, tell the truth. Here's number three, how to be a fool with your words. Gossip and slander as much as possible. Gossip and slander as much as possible. Share literally everything you know with everybody. And even things that you don't know, but you have just heard, share them. Whether you're certain it's true or not. After all, what you're about to tell that other person, 
isn't gossip at all, is it? You're just asking them to pray. I mean, Proverbs, again, unsurprisingly, has a lot to say about gossip and slander. So 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. I, I love that word, right? A whisperer. That's one of the things Proverbs calls a gossiper. Somebody who shares information, usually quietly with others. And the thing is, I mean, you can just tell from, from just that proverb there, Solomon's God, our number. I mean, a gossip's words, a whisperer's words, intel on other people in the church. For most of us, it's, it's a delicious little morsel, as Solomon says, right? I mean, you just take that little bit of information and you roll it around in your mouth and it tastes so, it's like chocolate. And then you want to share it with somebody else it tastes so good well what's the result what's the result of that 1628 solomon has our number there too a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer like this separates close friends you've seen that happen right gossip and slander begin to move through a church or through an organization and all of a sudden you have people not coming together in unity in christ but you have people being separated from from each other because of what he said she said he said he said they heard happens in churches all the time the result of Gossip, the result of slander, the result of whispering is always separation and breaking and disunity. So what's the solution? Well, listen to 2620. Basically, the solution is for you and me to decide that we're going to be a firebreak against gossip and slander in the church. Here's what 2620 says. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. It's an incredibly arresting image, isn't it? I mean, have you seen, have you seen how, they, how they fight fire with fire? You ever heard that phrase? It's not that you shoot fire on the fire to try to stop it. Uh, it it's that if a fire is burning through, through a forest, I know you guys have had forest fires here before, one of the ways they, uh, they fight those fires is actually to burn a swath of land in between the fire and the healthy forest in order that the fire won't have anything else to burn and it'll stop. Well, that's what Solomon is saying. You and I ought to be in the church when it comes to gossip and slander. We ought to be that kind of fire break so that when information comes to us, when we're tempted to whisper it to the next person, we just decide, nope, there's no log here. I'm not going to catch on fire. I'm not going to share that fire with somebody else. And if there are enough fire breaks in the church, gossip and slander, stop. Turn with me to 17.9. Show you how this works out a little more practically. How do you do this? How do you be a fire break against gossip and slander? Proverbs 17, verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Covering over an offense. That's one way to break fires. It's to say, you know what? Maybe I've been offended. Maybe I've heard of some offense. But instead of sharing it, instead of letting the fire continue to burn, I'm going to throw a wet blanket over it. I'm going to cover it. And by doing so, I'm going to love my church. Listen, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I mean, sometimes an offense, sometimes something that has happened is of such a nature that it would be exactly the wrong approach to cover it over in this way. And in fact, that's one of the main things you've got to learn about, about Proverbs is that 
It's a collection of sayings about what would be wise in various circumstances. And one of the one of the marks of wisdom is to be able to figure out in what circumstances which proverb applies. Right. So, yeah, in many cases, the best policy is going to be something like 179, cover an offense and seek love. In other cases, maybe the best policy is not 17.9, but maybe it's 26.26. Expose wickedness in the assembly. I mean, the point is that Proverbs isn't giving you an equation. It's giving you tools to just wisely navigate the circumstances you find yourself in. But in terms of the normal slander and gossip that we generally do, make yourself a fire break instead of just another log. Number four, another way to be a fool with your words. Be angry and speak anger in your words. I mean, after all, you deserve to vent and the people who made you angry deserve everything they're going to get. One of the main themes in Proverbs, though, is the need for a wise person not to vent their anger, but to control their anger, not constantly be spoiling for a fight. Here are a few. 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 14, 10, a man of quick temper acts foolishly. 26.21, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to a fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. 17.14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, like a dam breaking, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. I mean, you can see the point of these. There are others too. There are dozens of them. A quick, hot temper and a quarrelsome spirit are the marks of a fool, not somebody who is wise. Those things tend to destroy things and people around you, like fire according to one, like a broken dam according to another, like a city left without walls in another. And if you're a person who has a quick temper, you've probably seen all this. This is nothing, this is nothing new to you. You know how anger works, how it operates. So, so what do you do? What do you do if that's, if that's you? If you just have a quick temper? Well, let me give you a couple of things. First of all, just remember these Proverbs. Memorize these Proverbs so that they come to mind as a kind of early warning system, right? Think about 1911 too. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's 1911. Do you see a prescription there for being slow to anger? It's, it's very similar to the covering. It's overlooking an offense. How do you do that? How do you... How do you do that? Like, what's the mechanism for overlooking an offense? Is it just sweeping that thing under the rug? No, 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 no. It's not. I mean, ultimately, if you get right down to it, anger, of course, is a desire for revenge. It's a desire to get back at the person. So, to overlook an offense, like 1911 says, is basically just to make a, make a decision to waive the right of revenge. You're just looking at that offense and you're saying, I feel like I've got a right to revenge, but I'm going to make a decision to waive that right. It's to appeal to the highest court in the universe and say, God, I'm not going to try to execute judgment on this. I'm going to leave it to you to execute judgment on this. 2022, do not say, I will repay evil. Instead, wait for the Lord. And he will deliver you. Friends, learn to do that. Learn to overlook an offense, to just waive the right of revenge. Give it up. Throw the matter to the Lord for judgment. Appeal to the highest court in the universe. And I think if you learn to do that, you'll find in time your tendency to be angry and want revenge weakening. All right, number three. This is, this is point, big point number three. We don't want to be fools with our words, so a couple of quick things on how to be wise with words. Point number three, how to be wise with words. Three things. Number one, exercise self-control. 
Exercise self-control. Don't speak too much or too quickly. If Proverbs teaches us anything about words at all, this is probably the main lesson right here. In order to be wise with words is to use them sparingly and thoughtfully. Don't just waste them. Don't just let them flow out unchecked. 21-23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. 18-2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. 18-13. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. The mouth of the wicked pours stuff out. You see the point? In each of those, the emphasis is on guarding your tongue, keeping a rein on it, listening and understanding before you, think, before you speak. In other words, just using your words carefully and thoughtfully. As I was studying all these Proverbs, I, I think the most unexpected proverb to me, like the one that just, well, I was just like, oh, wow, was 26.2. So you can either turn there now or write it down. It even makes, 26.2, about this idea of using words carefully and thoughtfully, it even says that about cursing. It does not say that you should never do it, like use a cuss word, use a curse word. It doesn't say that, very surprisingly, to my teenage self. It does not say you should never curse. It says you should be thoughtful about it. I'm not kidding. Like Like a sparrow in its flitting Like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. Do you see what Solomon's saying there? I mean, it's this this point about being careful. He says, if you use a curse, if you cuss, you want it to alight. You want it to hit its intended target. So don't just let them fly everywhere. He's saying, I kid you not, if you're going to curse, make it count. It's not me, it's Solomon. I mean, ultimately, this goes back to what we talked about right at the beginning. Proverbs understands that words are powerful. They change reality for good or ill. And therefore, it cautions us to treat words with respect. Don't just throw them around. Know what their effect is going to be before you use them and then use them deliberately. I mean, is that you? Because some people take it as a point of pride to just spew words everywhere. You, you know, you, just, you, you, just, you, you take pride in the fact that, you, hey, I got no filter, y'all. Right? I just, I just tell you what I'm thinking. I say whatever comes to mind because I'm real like that. Well, that's great. You, you may be real, but being real is not always being right or wise. Sometimes being real is being a fool. And part of being a mature Christian is to learn to exercise self-control with your words. To speak neither too much nor too quickly. Here's number two. Number two, ways to be wise in your words. Don't use your words to create fights. Don't use your words to create fights. Use them to make peace. Life is full of so many opportunities to create a fight, right? You get sinned against. You get slighted, insulted. Somebody treats you badly. Somebody gets right up in your face about something. And the temptation in every single one of those instances is to give it right back to them. Give it as good as you get. It might even sound wise, but Proverbs takes a wholly different tack. It tends to say, no, you do not have to give as good as you get. You can use your words to create peace, not strife. 1419, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. He who has a hasty temper exalts exalts folly. 1518, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention and on and on and on and on. There are some people, even in the church, who just seem to be on a hair trigger when it comes to spoiling for a fight. In the slightest provocation, even things that aren't really a provocation at all, just send them into a kind of defensive explosion. I mean, I, you know, I suppose that's one strategy for getting your way, for protecting your own prerogatives. But listen to what Proverbs is saying here. Before you explode in a kind of defensive, let's fight attitude, take a beat. 
think about it. Figure out the best way forward. Maybe the best way forward, even the best way to get people to see it your way, is not with an explosion, but with gentleness, a soft answer, not a machine gun volley of return fire. And whoever it is you think is wrong to you. Use your words to be a peacemaker, not a fire setter. Finally, number three, use your words to build others up, not tear them down. Use your words to build others up, not tear them down. We've talked a ton this morning about the power of words. And one way that we're all familiar with the power of words to to wound and to destroy is in their ability to, to, to harm others. To say something that just sticks in someone's heart and harms them over time, even sometimes like a poison arrow. I mean, I imagine if we took a minute, every single one of us could think back and remember things that were said to us on our elementary school playground. You know, things that we, we look at it now, right? And we know, oh, that, that's silly. That shouldn't bother me. And yet, because of the way it was said, at the time it was said, it still continues to, to bother you. I mean, I'm speaking from experience here. When I was in fifth grade, this, this classmate of mine named Jeremy, just out of the blue, walked up to me in the fifth grade on the playground and just said, Greg, you're funny looking. And here I am, 44 years old, and that's still sticking with me, and I still don't like people named Jeremy. <laughs> I'm kidding. All of you Jeremys, I love you. We, we, only have, we only have three Jeremys at Third Avenue Baptist Church. I did everything I could to keep them out, but they just weaseled, they weaseled right in. No, my point is that words wound. They, they wound deeply. And, and those wounds sometimes don't just heal up in their own way. They remain. But words, it turns out, praise God, have power in the opposite direction too. They can build people up. They can encourage them in ways that will last just as long. 12.18 There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 27.9 Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. And sometimes lovingly bringing something to someone's attention that they need to think about is a way of loving them, even of healing them. 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Friend, how do you, how do you use your words? This is the last thing. If you could just, just kind of look at a movie or maybe a snapshot of your life and what your words have left in your wake... Is it mostly wounded people or is it mostly encouraged people? Have you left in your wake with your words a a kind of swath of brokenness and destruction? Or have you left a swath of people who are being built up and encouraged in the faith? When I was a kid, I used to to kind of imagine that I had sort of wizard powers, right? I could wave my hand, you know, shoot lightning out of my hand and change reality over there. I could shoot it out of my eyes and change reality over there. Well, I think what Proverbs kind of wants us to see is that we sort of do have those wizard powers. It just doesn't come out of our fingers or our eyes. It comes out of our mouths. We can create strife or we can create peace. We can bind up hearts or we can wound them. We can make things explode or we can calm storms. And we can do it all with our words. Friends, that is an incredible amount of power that God has given us as human beings, as Christians, as members of a church. So let's commit to using that power well and carefully and wisely. Let's pray.
Our Lord God, we thank you so much for this teaching that you've given us in the book of Proverbs, in this wisdom literature. We thank you that you haven't left us to just kind of pick our way through this fallen world and figure out how to live in it on our own. But Lord, you've given us light. You've given us wisdom for how we can live well in this world that you've created and which we in our sin have destroyed. So Father, help us to be wise. Help us to use our words wisely to build up and not to tear down, to work for the unity of this particular local church, Henson, uh, so that Jesus Christ might be glorified. We pray all of that in the name of Jesus and always to his honor and glory. Amen.